Thank you, Brother Dan. The title of our lesson this morning is New Birth Required. Our objective is that we would trust in Christ for salvation and respond to God's love with faith, obedience, uh, sharing the good news with others. We'll be in John chapter 3 this morning, uh, so you can turn there if you would, please. Our family theme is that Jesus gives new life. We have two key truths. Number one, we must be born again if we're going to have eternal life. And number two, God loves us dearly, and he loves us enough that he sent his son to die for us. Do we have a video this morning, Jason? Were we able to get to our connect? Let's go ahead and play that right now if you don't mind. We live in a day where it means almost nothing to be a Christian. According to research, almost four out of every five Americans identify themselves as Christians. Four out of five. But in this group of self-proclaimed Christians, less of less than half of them are involved in church on a weekly basis. Less than half of them actually believe the Bible is true. The overwhelming majority of them don't have a biblical view of the world around them. So researchers went even deeper then to distinguish men and women who are born-again Christians as if there's any other kind of Christian. But these are people who say they've made a personal commitment to Jesus. They believe they'll go to heaven because they've accepted Jesus as their Savior. And according to research, almost half of Americans, so half of Americans are born-again Christians. But you look at this group of born-again Christians and researchers found that their beliefs and lifestyles are virtually indistinguishable from the world around them. Many born-again Christians believe that their works can earn them a place in heaven. Others think that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Some believe that Jesus sinned while he was on earth. And an ever-increasing number of born-again Christians just describe themselves as marginally committed to Jesus. So people have used data like this to conclude that Christians are really not that different from the rest of the world. But I don't don't think that interpretation of that research is accurate. I think the one thing that's abundantly clear from those statistics is there are a whole lot of people in our country who think that they are Christians, but they are not. There are scores of people here and around the world who culturally identify themselves as Christians and biblically are not followers of Christ. Thank you, Jason. What do you think? Say, what do you say, Wayne? It's probably true. Isn't it sad? Now, frankly, I'm surprised. And uh, again, I didn't see any, I didn't look at any of the comments when I, I've, I've seen the video before. Uh, but at any rate, I, I don't know whether that was Barna Research or Pew Research that did that. Uh, but statistics are out there. And I was surprised that even in our culture today that four out of five would identify as being Christians in our nation. That surprised me, first of all. That's a lot. And, uh, wow, but think about that. Four out of five and less than half are involved in church. But we see it all the time, don't we? And you ask them, are you a Christian? What are they going to tell you? Sure, I'm a Christian. 
I mean, I, you know, 25 years ago, I made a profession of faith. I've repeated some words, and I haven't been to church in 30 years, but, you know, whatever. And it's okay. And what's interesting, according to what that research said, out of the four or five, less than half believe that the Bible is true. And you caught what he said when they began to research born again, those who claim to be born-again Christians. And his comment was what? As if there's any other kind. If you're a Christian, you've got to be, have, be what? You've got to be born again, okay? You have to be born again. And even those, almost half, that claim to be born again, believe they'll go to heaven by their works. And those who did research found out that their lifestyles were hardly any different than the lifestyle of the world. And of course, the conclusion that people draw from something like that is, well, you're no different than we are. But again, like he said, that study shows us there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who are not. And and by the way, I, I don't know about you, but uh, Pam and I, we have people in our family that way who claim to be Christians. My sister who just lost uh, their house. Now, their house is an RV. Uh, they decided to sell their house years ago and and buy a uh, uh a house with wheels on it, okay? And they spent a lot of time at the lake, things like that. But nonetheless, uh, they lost what they had. <laughs> but if you ask her, I'm sure she would claim to be a Christian, but her life doesn't back it up. And our world is filled with people like that. You know, the problem is, the problem is, is when people are self-deceived. Now, one statement uh, David Platt made was, they're not biblical Christians. So they're not born again, and they are not going to heaven. So I guess my question, or our question in, in the way of Connect this morning, is to ask, you know, why some people want to call themselves Christians, but their lives are contrary to the Scriptures. Why would they want to do that? Yeah, it does. I mean, they're trying to satisfy their own guilt. Um, And here's the thing. Being a Christian, and we're preaching on Sunday morning for the last few months, it changes your life. It changes your life. So, again, how would you... What are some of the characteristics that ought to describe a person who is truly born again? What are some of the characteristics that ought to describe them? What's some things that should set them apart? In what way? Yes, indeed. So many things. Now, by the way, and this may surprise some of us, one of the telltale signs of how 
committed people are to Christ if you look at their checkbook. What do I mean by that? Say it again, man. Is where you're hearted. Now, I'm not saying that giving to the church saves you, not at all. But I understand, and, and that church attendance, I think, is important. And, you know, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning. You were here, right? And But, again, it's more than just that. It's, and, Wayne, you said every part of our life should be different. Our attitudes need to be different. So I think the thing we can conclude this morning in our Connect is that being a Christian or, or claiming to be born again is more than just a title. It is a lifestyle. And so, again, we're going to find out today that Jesus said those who are going to see the kingdom of God, they must be born again. And that means born anew or born from above. Okay? In John chapter 2, a lot of things went on there. And it was a time during Passover... And Jesus saw what was going on as they were selling and buying in the temple area. And not that that was in itself wrong, but uh, it was kind of like the supply and demand need. You need to buy a sheep or a lamb or a goat, and so you don't have one with you, so what am I going to charge you? And whatever I want. And so Jesus, he made it a den of thieves and robbers. And so he cleansed out uh, the temple, threw them out of there. And uh, do you think he, it caught the attention of anybody? <laughs> what, do you think their, their, what do you think their reaction might have been? <laughs> yeah, wow, what's he doing? Now, it's also interesting At the end of chapter 2, the Bible says because of his miracles, a lot of people said they were joining themselves to him. But John said Jesus knew their heart. He knew it was inside of them. So he wouldn't commit to them. Would you agree a lot of people in our world today are like that as well? They want the title. They want their guilt. Wayne, you talked about the guilt a while ago. They want that guilt at least relieved a little bit. And so they claim to be a Christian. Now, remember, he was in the temple area. It was Passover. Every male Jew from anywhere in the world was required to return to Jerusalem during Passover, one of three festivals it was required of. Actually, really the Feast of Unleavened Bread that happened during Passover season. And so... Would you agree there have been a lot of Pharisees in the temple area? They saw what he did. And again, because of the miracles, a lot of people joined themselves to him, John said in chapter 2. But he wouldn't commit himself to them. That's what it says, last verse of chapter 2. But now, we're going to chapter 3. Don't close your mind on chapter 2. Even though he wouldn't commit himself to that crowd, look what the first word say, first verse of chapter 1 say. There was a man. Somebody read, if you will, the first 15 verses of John 3. 
Thank you, Dan. Again, I want to emphasize the importance of what we're seeing here this morning. The crowd didn't impress Jesus. He knew their heart wasn't right. But then in chapter 3, verse 1, we find there's a man. What does that tell us? Who is Jesus interested in? In women, individuals. So we're introduced to a man. What's his name? Nicodemus. What was his status in life? Say it again. Okay, he's a ruler of the Jews. Very prestigious. Many believe he's a part of the Sanhedrin Council, the highest court in the land. So would you agree that Nicodemus had some influence? What about respect? Yeah. We also know, that verse 1 says, there was a man of the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? Okay. There you go. And there were two groups. The Pharisees were the more literal. <clears throat> Did you hear me say literal, Jason? Of the two groups. And uh, I couldn't help it, Jason, I'm sorry. Uh, but the Sadducees were the aristocrats, they were the wealthy group. Uh, but the Pharisees were more the common man's religion. Now, by the way, um, we always think bad of the Pharisees and were things they were doing wrong, and Jesus called their hand. But for the most part, a lot of them really didn't want to please God. They were just going about it the wrong way. So his name is Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, probably on the Sanhedrin Council.
But then in verse 2, we see something about his attitude. What does he call Jesus? Rabbi. Yes, and that's right, right, Pam, that's important. Because a Pharisee does not arbitrarily throw out that word rabbi. They wouldn't do that unless, what? They believed that he was a rabbi. So he had the right attitude. But also, when when did he come? At night. Been a lot of speculation on why he came at night. The truth is we don't know. One thing for sure, it's Passover season. Crowds are gathered around Jesus. It may have been the only time he, he could get along with Jesus. So maybe the schedule, convenience. Maybe to avoid the normally hot weather of the day. So he comes at night. He calls him rabbi. Again, a a term that a Pharisee would not just give to anyone. Now what's interesting is this. They would definitely not give it to anyone who had no formal training. Now did Jesus have formal training? As far as the world is concerned? Not according to them, but yet Nicodemus called him rabbi. He also makes a statement about Jesus, about where he came from. And he says, you must come from who? From God. Why? The miracles you're doing. There's no one can do the miracles you do unless God Send him. Now we don't know for sure, but it's a great possibility that Nicodemus was there when Jesus cleansed the temple. He was, and we, it's evident he saw the miracles that John spoke about in chapter 2. So you must come from God based on the miracles you're doing. But then verse 3 kind of throws us a curve. And what did Jesus say to him in verse 3? Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in verse 2, we have Nicodemus speaking about Jesus coming from God because of the miracles he did. But when I look at verse 3, my first reaction is, what does verse 3, what Jesus said, had to do with Nicodemus said in verse 2? Now here's the key, folks. The Bible is its own best commentary. In chapter 2, the last verse said, Jesus knows what's in the heart of a man. 
He wouldn't commit himself to them because he knows what was in their heart. What did Jesus know about Nicodemus? What was in his heart? A couple of weeks ago in John, John 1, we looked at that Christ came into his own world and his own people rejected him. That's verse 11, John 1. In verse 12, John said, But as many received him, gave he the authority to become the Son of God. So Christ had already, or John had already alluded to this idea of being born again, the new birth. Now I mentioned that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were adamant about keeping the law in order to get where? Get to heaven. And Nicodemus has spent his entire life doing that. So there they were, Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees. Obeying the law of God, concerned about the law of God, and they were concerned about the coming kingdom of God. By the way, was the kingdom of God coming? Yes. So Jesus, knowing what's in the heart of man, said to Nicodemus, I know what you're doing. Now, again, implying... I know what you're striving for, and I know what you're concerned with. But Nicodemus, what you need to know is, if you're going to get this kingdom of God, you need to do what? You've got to be born again. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, if you are ever going to see the kingdom of God, there has to be a spiritual rebirth. And my friend, that spiritual birth is just as real as our physical birth. You must be born again. Now, I have a question about that. Was Jesus ambiguous about, ambiguous about that statement? What do you mean, no, Dan? Straight up. Yeah, if you want to go to heaven... You must be born again. Okay, let's pause for a minute, okay, for some input here. We talk about being born again. We use that phrase quite often. We claim to be born again. So my question is, what does it mean to be born again? Okay, that brings it, okay. But what really brings it? What really gives us the new spiritual life? Say it again. Okay, repentance. But it all involves the work of the Holy Spirit. It Every bit is the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, repent. We've got to believe in Jesus Christ. It's all part of it. 
And, and that's, if you will, the avenue. But being born again is being born from above. It's the power of God, the Holy Spirit, working in our life. So in our text this morning, we have, a, I think, a very religious man, wouldn't you agree? Nicodemus was religious. So why is being religious not enough to get us into the kingdom of God? Why is that not enough? <laughs> you took the easy way out, damn but you're right. And, and by the way, no matter how religious a person is, are they sinless? No. And so you can't get there on your own religion because everybody falls short of God's standard. And by the way, what can we do to earn our salvation? Wayne, you're pretty narrow-minded on that when you said nothing, but that's exactly right. We can do nothing. So here's Nicodemus, a very religious man. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, don't worry, that's enough. No. He told Nicodemus, you need a new birth. Now notice there in verse 4. <clears throat> what was Nicodemus' question? Yeah, how can that be? <clears throat> Now, a lot of folks have said, well, Nicodemus, you're being too literal there. Uh, Maybe that was it. But I think better yet, he he got a hold of that metaphor Christ was using. And his question is, how in the world can a person already set in life, how can they start a new life? Now, it's interesting, whether he was being too literal or caught the metaphor doesn't matter, caught the metaphor doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is, what was Nicodemus' problem? He didn't understand. He didn't understand. He wasn't not believing. He simply didn't understand. And yet he doesn't totally dismiss of what Jesus has said. He just doesn't understand. So in verse 5, Jesus explains it to him. He says, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you will never enter the kingdom of God. What? In the world, does that mean? You can't all talk at one time. There's some kind of order in here. What does that mean? Say it louder. If I can hear you, you know I can't hear What do you mean by that? It's plain. You've got to be born of the water and of spirit. 
people are afraid. And Pam, you're right, there's a lot of controversy. Uh, some see the water as baptism, water baptism. Um, but if you study the scripture, that doesn't fit. Nowhere does the Bible say water baptism saves you. Now, by the way, there's a denominator that teaches that, that salvation comes at baptism. And that is not biblical. And then, of course, they would, some would say that uh, water represents the physical birth. That's hard to prove because, you know, we know now that uh, part of the birth today has always been the breaking of the water, but doctors didn't re- really understand that back in that time. So that's probably not it either. But again, I'm not going to throw either one of those out. That's what people believe. Now, Briefed on this several years ago. I'm not going to take time to go through it this morning. But both Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about a time when God would wash us and give us a new heart and a new spirit. And I kind of think that's what Jesus is referring to there. It's something that both are what God does. We're washed with the Word of God. We receive the Spirit of God. But again, that's been controversial. But what's interesting, Jesus continues in verse 6, uh, to remind Nicodemus, there is definitely a difference between natural human birth and the spiritual birth that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, again, uh, some people would argue that water is baptism. And in that culture, uh, baptism was expected of pagan converts to Judaism. Or uh, baptism was expected of people uh, repenting of sin. That's the baptism John the Baptist did. And certainly the Pharisees, why, if you said they need to be baptized, what would they tell you? Not me. I don't sin, okay? Uh, so they, they, they don't need to repent, and therefore they don't need baptism. Now, uh, again, uh, if Christ did mean uh, water baptism, uh, that requires some very serious thought about uh, the teacher of Israel. And, of course, the teacher of Israel is how Jesus identified uh, Nicodemus. So while they're talking, Jesus begins to compare the work of the Holy Spirit with what? What does it say in our text? With the wind. And what does it say about that? What does it say about the wind? And if you can't see it, you can see the effects. I uh, can't tell much about it. We don't know if it's going to get stronger or, or move on somewhere else. And Jesus is saying that that's the way the Holy Spirit works. He moves among people. We hear of the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't see it. But we can see what he does, the effects he has on people's lives. And so we don't know and we cannot tell how long that activity will continue or move along somewhere else. And and that's why spiritual conviction 
we need to respond to it when? The moment it happens. Because we don't know how long or even if it will continue. So how does a wind illustrate the work of the Holy Spirit? How does a wind illustrate the work of the Holy Spirit? Say it again. Absolutely. Okay. Can we see the effects they have on? Sure. We can see the effects of that. Oh, absolutely. Yes, and that's it. The Spirit of God does it, and you can see the effects of it on our lives. And like Pam said, it doesn't mean you drop all the bad habits right away, but God is working in your life, and you see a progress of moving toward a maturity in our spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that's certainly a, a good point. That's interesting. <clears throat> in verse 7 and 8, uh, kind of gives us a, a nuance that's kind of difficult to translate. Now, if you had a Greek concordance, and you looked at that word spirit, and the word wind, they're both the same in the Greek. Pneuma. And uh, some scholars asked the question, they wondered, if maybe the wind started blowing that evening as Christ was talking to John. We don't know for sure. Our Christ was talking to Nicodemus, not John. Uh, and we don't know for sure, but it may have, may have been. But Jesus used it as illustration for what he wanted Nicodemus to begin to understand. Now, it's also interesting. Uh, there's a difference in the pronoun you. Y-O-U there. One, is, one time it's used as singular, and another time it is plural. Now, in our modern English world, uh, we only use uh, what is known as a second person, uh, singular, uh, or plural for you. Both are the same, but not so in the Greek language. The first you in verse 7 is singular. Jesus said, you, Nicodemus, singular, should not be surprised. But the second one, you, is plural in the Greek. So you, singular Nicodemus, should not be surprised when I tell you, plural, that you must be born again. So what's the point, preacher? What Jesus told Nicodemus was the same thing he was telling to who? Everybody else. To you all. Nicodemus, what I've been teaching the crowd, is the same thing I'm saying to you. And so now Jesus, the crowd in John 2, who didn't really want to come to him, he addresses Nicodemus personally 
sharing what he had been sharing with all who would listen. You must be born again. So verse 9, if you had to give Nicodemus a question in one word, what would it be? How? How? Again, not unbelief, just incomprehension. Now, verse 10 in our English versions, <clears throat> Jesus said to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel, but the Greek is more emphatic. It says, you are the teacher of Israel. Highlighting Jesus' point. Nicodemus, you, you, the teacher of Israel, you don't understand? You don't understand? And in verse 11, Jesus used that word we there. Maybe the disciples were there, I don't know. But also understand Nicodemus would have problems coming to terms of what Christ was saying without the approval of the Sanhedrin. And Christ is being emphatic here. He said, Nicodemus, you need to know something. It's not the Sanhedrin who sets the rules. Who does? God does. Nicodemus, you need to know something here. You need to know that God is working outside the realm of the Sanhedrin. It is not their prerogative to decide. It is God's prerogative. So in verse 12, he says, he goes from we to I. I've told you earthly things, he says. The birth, the wind. Trying to describe a spiritual truth in Nicodemus. And Jesus and Nicodemus, if you don't understand this, how in the world are you going to understand greater things? And what's the answer? You're not. You see, the Jews really believed that if, 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 I got an, if I get enough learning, if, if I have enough, gain enough scholarly evidence, I can discover the ultimate truth. And what did Jesus say about that? I can't. Because nobody can discover heaven for themselves. And there's only one person who's ever been there and come to us. And who is that? Jesus. And so the point Christ is making to Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus already admitted 
You must come from God. So Jesus says, I'm the only one, Nicodemus, who's ever been there. The Son of Man. So Nicodemus, will you, plural, the Jews, listen to me? Jesus said, no, you won't. The same way you lift up the serpent in the wilderness, I, you, will lift me up. What does that mean? Does it mean there's going to be a great revival in Israel and the Jews are going to go about bragging about Jesus? No. Nicodemus knew what Jesus meant. That term lift up means to crucify. Nicodemus, you won't listen to you being the Jews, but what you will do, you will crucify me. It can't be that time, actually. You think Nicodemus ever read Numbers 21? About the serpent? Sure he did. He understood the graphic euphemism there. Jesus and Nicodemus, the sacrifice I'm going to make, if you will accept it through faith, I can heal you from your sin. You remember in Numbers when they looked on the snake, what happened? They were healed from that snake bite. Why all the trouble to tell Nicodemus about the new birth? Why speak of birth, wind, and a bronze snake in the wilderness? In verse 15, Jesus said, because I want people to believe so they might have eternal life. Think about this. Eternal life, Jesus told Nicodemus. Could Nicodemus even dare think about that? Think about my Matt, Can you imagine that? And yet it was there. And guess who, who it's available to? Everyone, including Nicodemus. There was a man. To the Sanhedrin, even to the unlearned disciples that they looked down upon. It's available to anyone who will believe. Folks, we live in a world today that's lost without Christ. And everyone everywhere needs to recognize that's our application. Their need to be forgiven of sin and be born again by trusting in Jesus Christ. Jason rang the bell too early. We didn't quite get through here.
After verse 15, guess what comes next? Verse 16. Why? For God so loved the world. I'm glad he did. Let's stand together. Next week, chapter 4, John. I'm going to try to do better and get farther along in the lesson next week. But our title is, All Are Welcome. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in the midst of a broken, hopeless world, you give us hope. And our hope is in Christ Jesus, the one who came down from heaven. Draw us near to you, Lord. And yes, Lord, let us live like we are truly born again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.